you referenced uh, was fairly damning of multiple governments not dealing with the preventative end, catching things at an early stage. We seem to be in a whole new era of anxiety, starting with our, uh, some of our very young school children. Any teacher will tell you a significant proportion of their class has genuine anxiety challenges. Uh, and then that goes through into high school and out into the workforce, university, wherever. What can be done? What are your plans for the ambulance at the top of the cliff rather than the bottom? Yeah. So... When you look at my priorities, one is to increase access to timely support in New Zealand, uh, and these aren't in, in set order, but uh, two is workforce, and the third is prevention and early intervention. And so, look, the reality is we need to ensure that we um, treat mental illness a lot better, but equally, in parallel to that, we need to be making sure that we promote mental well-being, because, of course, they're connected. And the more we can increase well-being and resilience, I'd like to think the less are going to arrive in crisis uh, and distress. Young people, I think, uh, are leading this debate at the moment. They're highly articulate about mental health. Uh, They have a vocabulary I or others older never had. They face this stigma. They are asking for us. I, I think they're driving this debate. And it occurs to me that we have the ability now uh, to uh, deliver better mental health education uh, and skills training in schools. To, it's about a toolkit to equip kids. And one final point I'd make on that is you read these surveys now, right, and you'll you read an article and it says 80% of university students uh, are suffering from anxiety uh, or anxious. And I think we've got to watch that it's a normal um, state, anxiety to a point. You know, you might have left home for the first time to go to university, financial pressures, maybe drinking a bit too much, uh, relationship, academic attainment levels. The real question is, how many of that 80%, their anxiety is negatively impacting on their life, and if we had given them a skill set earlier on that they learnt about anxiety and were able to manage it, then they could have yeah. potentially alleviated that. So Look, there's a, an absolute a, a, agreed, focus on but that. But when, t- when you talk to parents whose children won't go to school, primary school children won't go to school, refuse to go to school, and I know what you're going to say to that, but it, it, we are not talking about stubbornness here. We are talking about kids who have something going on that doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I have had parents emailing in saying... My 16-year-old just will not get out of bed and go to school. Yes, and it yes. seems to be a post-pandemic yes. issue. Yep. Now, where does that parent go? And, and, and look, we've got to be very clear. In that position, I'm not advocating for better mental health education in the school because that is not the right response but is there a service for that, in the school for that person. with the right qualifications and to deal with those that, issues rather than the classroom teacher and the parent? Well, I, I, I agree. And that's where it needs to be joined up around the prevention, that we're promoting um, better mental health education. Uh, And then you move to the next level where, for those who might need some targeted support. So what does that look like? Is that the school counsellor? Is it the school referring into a platform like Gumboot Friday, which has capacity to see people within uh, one to two days? Or is that person actually needing a specialist service? And if you look at the Manayake service that's been rolled out, uh, that's integrating specialist service in schools. So, so actually it is a continuum. You've got the position that you sought all those years ago. Um, how will you 
mark your own performance? How do you expect others to in delivering results? Yeah, it's a very good question because, um, look, I'm the sort of character um, that I'm very clear. I haven't done anything. Getting a job means nothing. Um, It's about what you use the position for. It might sound a bit high level, but I think one of the successes is that when I move on or this government moves on, successive governments after me say, actually, that role was of value and we will continue the, men- the, the, the role for um, Minister for Mental Health. That clearly, I think, decision will be based on what I achieve over the next three years. And those three areas uh, of access, workforce... Uh, and prevention and early intervention, I'll be clearly outlining uh, my expectations of what I want to achieve in those areas and how I'll be measured. Thank you, Matt Ducey, the Minister for Mental Health. A lot of feedback pouring in from you. Thank you. We will get to it as we can throughout the morning. 25 minutes to 10. Grant Walker has headlines. The Prime Minister has reiterated his police minister misspoke yesterday and 500 new police will be delivered within two years. The government is rolling back rules aimed at restricting predatory payday lenders, saying they've gone too far and made it harder for people to borrow. A senior Hamas official says Benjamin Netanyahu is not interested at all in pursuing a ceasefire agreement. And former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan believes his 10-year prison sentence for leaking state secrets is politically motivated. We'll be back with full news and weather at 10. This morning on First Up, we heard about a music festival on the bike paths of Auckland. We've got two live music stages, a whānau stage and a DJ stage. There's also some markets, bike parking and a food village as well. And the goings-on from the 46th annual New Zealand Hang Gliding Open Championships. We'll try and follow the set of waypoints, which might be a course between, say, 60 to 130 kilometres. The first and goal is the winner, and then everyone else is based on where they've landed or flown to during the day. Download First Up the podcast or join me, Nathan Rarity, weekday mornings live from 5 on RNZ National. Uh, 24 minutes to 10. Thank you for your very thoughtful uh, feedback so far on mental health. Many of you working within the system or experiencing the system with a loved one. We will get to it throughout the morning, I promise. With Auckland's light rail project officially scrapped, focus is returning to the other pieces of Auckland's road network puzzle and who should take charge of them. The plan had the potential to close to take close to 15,000 cars off the road, but suffered a cost blowout when it was decided to partly tunnel the rail line. The big aims for Auckland now include completing the city rail link, which will act as an underground connection between existing train services, and bolstering bus lanes to connect the city's northwest. Mayor Wayne Brown has long called for closer collaboration between central and local government on transport issues pertinent to Auckland. To look ahead at what's next for the super city in this area, we welcome editor of Urban Design blog Greater Auckland, Matt Lowry. Morning, Matt. Morning. Uh, we are hoping to follow up on this with officials and perhaps with the mayor, but you uh, do a lot of the uh, crunchy work yourself. So looking ahead at... What now? Where does attention shift to now that light rail's gone? Yeah, I think in some ways light rail was a, a big um, black hole in, in, in Auckland because it sucked a lot of a lot of the thinking and resource away from a lot of the potential options for what we could have. And I think the, if we focus on what the what what is an existing plans, um, we, you mentioned the northwest as both the previous government and this government have said that's a priority to 
to build a busway there. The other piece, the other big infrastructure piece that's currently being discussed or under construction is the Eastern Busway and also eventually a busway from Botany through to the airport. So those are the big pieces that the government have said they want to build. Um, some of that will depend on funding, whether they can get funding from Auckland Council to, to help to help do that as well. And that some of that will be up in the air with rates and what have you. Um, but I think the big thing for Auckland will be how do we get out of uh, of these, you know, always trying to think about these big infrastructure projects and how can we get a lot of other focus on other public transport services and get improvements in those areas so that um, it's not just if you live on the, on you know, close to those those routes that you have the most benefit. Well, let's have a look at some of the rapid transport plan because I, I understand that some of it is about trying to make better connections uh, with what is the more frequent services nearer to the central city. What are some of the corridors there um, that that are in play under the rapid transport plan? Could you just delve into a little bit more detail? Yeah, so Auckland has, has long had a... a what's called as rapid transit network, which is a plan for these these really high quality services. That's your rail lines, your busways, uh, those sorts of, of quality. And you know, that is um, what we other than what's currently we have or what's been built, we have as the northwest, the, the Eastern Busway, the airport to Botany Busway. We also have plans for a busway um, or rapid transit line on the upper harbour, so from Westgate through to, to Constellation Station. So that would provide a, another connection that way. And um, cross town and of course the big one was in the middle of the of the isthmus, so down around about Dominion Road somewhere likely, which is what light rail was meant to be trying to solve. Uh, is there so any? Those are the big, well, the that's big the point. Is there now a great gaping hole in that plan? That's the point. Yeah, there is in a, in a way, and the reality is that um, the, the the factors that led to light rail originally being proposed, which is, for example, to address bus congestion in the city centre, uh, those those reasons all still exist and are going to continue to exist into the future. So uh, we still need to find a way of, of addressing how we improve public transport through that part, of the, that part of Auckland. Which agencies are in play here? Uh, well, you have Auckland Transport being dealing with the, actually running the services and dealing with local buses and local roads. Um, many of these infrastructure projects, such as the northern a potential northwestern busway, the northern busway, they sit within the, within the state highway network. So the NZTA, Waka Kotahi, um, manage those. Um, and then you've you've got the funding, which often these, the funding for these projects come from separately from government as well. And so you've got Auckland Council and the government at a political level and a funding level, and then you've got delivery at at Auckland Transport and, and NZTA level. The Mayor, Wayne Brown, has called for Auckland to have more say over Auckland-focused transport projects. Are you seeing that happen? Is it too early to tell? I think it's too early to tell. Um, I think what we can say, though, is that Auckland has done better with delivering delivering public transport projects when Auckland is in charge and and setting the agenda. And we look at something like the City Rail Link, which was... Yeah, you know, there's a lot of political fighting over it. That was pushed by Auckland. Auckland was the you know the instigator, kept the project going when we had a, a government that was that was opposed to it until they finally came around and realised that it was needed. Um, and I think the same thing will occur with other rapid transit projects that they need to be Auckland Auckland led. Even having just Auckland ministers in charge, like we like we had with with um, light rail, for example, isn't enough to get these projects over the line. They need to be Auckland planned, Auckland led and with government funding to support rather than 
the government getting involved and pushing the project themselves. How much will these, of a difference do these busways make? For example, for those who've got um, transport coming in from the west, say, and, you know, you, in the general traffic lane and then there might be a bit of busway and then there's another ge- bit of general traffic lane stuck in the congestion. Where they have been completed, how much difference do they make to travel flows and uh, commute times? Yeah, if we look at the Northern Busway, for example, uh, that, that has been an absolute huge success. You know, so when that was built, um, well, since that's been built, the, the number of people crossing the Harbour Bridge by bus in, in the morning peak is, is around about 40 to 50%. And when you, when you talk about traffic into the city centre, it's more like 80% of traffic tra- to the city centre is coming in on a bus as a result of that busway. And you know, where we build these high-quality solutions, people use it. And you know, if we look at the three rail lines that we have and the Northern Busway, those combined will almost make up almost a third of all public transport trips in Auckland and out of hundreds of other routes. And so they are incredibly important because the, the, they are high, the high quality and the, the rapid you know, speed of them makes, makes them very attractive to people to use. And you know, the Northern Busway is a good example because people will quite happily catch a bus to, to the station to, catch, to then catch another bus into the city, for example, to transfer and, and do that just like we do in, people do in any other city around the world. What's your position on congestion charging? I think it's really important for Auckland. Uh, it helps make people understand the, the cost that, that congestion is, is causing on people and helps better make, use, make better use of our road space. We have a very limited ability to build new road capacity and in some ways even more public transport capacity. And so any of those options, and like we saw with light rail, that, that what was proposed in the end um, you know, those those can be very, very expensive projects. And so we have to make sure we're getting the most out of our existing road network. And that can help put off the need for big, big expensive infrastructure projects for quite some time until we, we absolutely need them, which can be, it means we can focus that funding that we have on other projects in other parts of Auckland to, to improve those areas, which is which is critical as well. Matt, thank you. Matt Lowry, who uh, is a commentator, he's the editor of Urban Design Blog, Greater Auckland. 16 minutes to 10. Let's get to some of your feedback on our interview with the new Minister for Mental Health. This person, my son, is about to go out to age out of youth mental health. He is chronically suicidal and clearly unwell. He's made previous attempts. He will not be referred to adult mental health because he's not suffering from psychosis, which is apparently the threshold. So we are going to be alone with our very unwell suicidal son, with no access to appropriate help and support. The system is playing Russian roulette with my son's life. Another correspondent, working in addictions as I have for decades, there is an 80% failure rate. Only 20% of clients make use of treatment and are ready for maintaining change. Prevention is the best way forward, but there needs to be money for that. Another says, I'm at rehab and given the way things are run, I'm the only person out of over 70 to progress this far along the programme. I've been here 19 months. Another says, I work in a tertiary clinical faculty. The problem is not the pipeline at unis. It is public and private not having placements and charging unis and students for placements. My father-in-law is a senior specialist doctor and has to battle with management to get his appropriate pay. These are the issues that are driving people away. Another says, uh, on mental health, the discussion is right on point. My daughter, straight out of uni with a public health degree, has a job at an NGO mental health business. She announced over the weekend her intention to leave. Her reasons are lack of funding for the organisation, not enough staff 
and general burnout. To quote her, her mental health is not good because of the job. Uh, let's just see. My daughter is a doctor on a training program in a different specialty. The bottleneck is having enough senior people to train the ones on the programs. Thank you. I think we discussed that. Another says, please could you ask about eating disorder treatment? It is appalling how many are still dying from this horrific mental illness. Sorry, we didn't mention it during the interview. We have covered it as a story, and thank you for the reminder of it. Uh, one more here. It would also help if ACC allowed interns to provide services under the supervision of agencies and private practitioners. Any work on that front? Uh, many, many, many more. Uh, one here I think I'll finish with. You can throw as much money and staff at mental health as you want. It means nothing if you can if you continue to increase the causes of it. Thank you all for your feedback. Some more later, 13 minutes to 10. Let's cross the Tasman to Canberra, where Karen Middleton is political chief political correspondent for the Saturday paper. Bit of movement in your federal politics at the moment, actually, Karen. It's been stable for a wee while, but what's causing a bit of friction at the start of the year? Good morning. Can you hear me? Okay, we just seem to have a little uh, switching problem with Karen there. Can we can we see if we can get that resolved as quickly as possible, please? Uh, let's look ahead at what is coming up after eleven uh, after ten o'clock today, please. And our guest is R. A. Spratt. And if you have a young reader of a certain age, she will need no introduction. In fact, she may have been. Uh, the subject of nagging from you to go and visit one of her recent uh, reader-writer events. She was in the country just before Christmas. Her hit series include Nanny Piggins and Friday Barnes, but we're going to talk about her newest work as well, and just what it takes to get a kid completely hooked on reading. Karen, I think we're connected. How are you? Okay, we might see if we can switch to telephone, I think, Karen, if you can just hang in there with us. Coming up after 11 on 9 to noon, among our guests, Libby Kirkby-McLeod, who is in Hamilton. Actually, she's with us about a quarter to 11, RNZ reporter there. And voting is now open for the by-election in Hamilton City Council's East Ward, uh, which was uh, vacated by the, the new MP. Dave Wilson has the music for us after 11, and we'll meet businesswoman Sophie Cooper, uh, and her husband, who founded the body care business Ahihana around seven years ago. They are now selling in 8,000 stores across New Zealand, Australia and the United States, including Target and Walmart. She'll be with us about uh, 25 past 11. And Bridget Lem later schools back for many around the country. It's hoped a new tool can help boost students' financial literacy. It's being developed by PMG Charitable Trust. In partnership with Life Education, we'll hear more about the Smarts Online program. Uh, hoping we might be able to get to Karen by phone. 11 minutes to 10 it is.
virtual insanity. That is Jamiroquay. Nine minutes to ten. I think we're there by the old dog and bone, Karen. Good morning. Good morning. Don't know what the technology is doing to us, Catherine. Sorry oh, about that. Sometimes it just likes to have fun. Now, uh, as I said, mm. a bit of a bit of um, a trouble uh, for, for the first time for a while at the government. Actually, a bit of stoush at the start of this year. Can you just elaborate? Yes, tax cut stoush. When there's money involved, Catherine, it always seems to be stoush. Funny, isn't it? Um, actually, the government ended the year sort of not not doing terribly well, and it's starting the year on a controversial footing. There were tax cuts that are due to take effect here in Australia in July of this year that were actually legislated under the previous coalition government way back in 2019. It was sort of like a bit of a time bomb for any future government. They're pretty generous, particularly at the top end of the income spectrum. And uh, people have argued for, some people have argued for a long time they're too generous, particularly in the current economic climate. The government that we have now decided to let them through at the time and decided not to make a fuss about them at the last election, uh, calculating probably correctly that it would have been political suicide to say, we want to take away tax cuts from you. So they didn't do it, but they're doing it now. <laughs> but what, they do, what they've done is recast these proposed tax cuts so the top end doesn't get as much and those at the lower middle income end get more. And now what it has to do is legislate that through the parliament. So parliament sits next week. And there'll be a big debate about that. Uh, some of those who've been advocating against the generosity of the tax cuts, like the Greens, are saying they're still too generous at the top end and that should be cut further. And the Coalition are now the ones in a difficult political position. They have to decide whether they are going to back these changes and then be the ones going into the next election in, in, in opposition, accused similarly of taking tax cuts away from people. And in fact, there are more people who will benefit now uh, at that middle end than, than who will lose at the top end. So interesting political debate to start the year. It is. I noticed, I think the latest Roy Morgan uh, just landed yesterday and a couple of points off, I think, for the incumbent government, but nothing too devastating. What is it that saw the PM booed? at your, you know, supposed to be quite sedate Australian Open tennis final. Uh-huh, yeah, well, maybe it was these tax cuts, Catherine. People are trying to work this out as well. It could have been that because if you look at the demographic of the people who might have gone to the Australian <coughs> pardon me, Open final, the uh, the cheapest tickets there were about around about $2,000 Australian dollars. So it's a demographic that may be affected by the cuts to the top end of the tax cuts, and that's what some people are saying may have been the reason for the booing. Other people are wondering whether it's the war in Gaza, which has been very polarising here as it has everywhere, and uh, there's been some criticism of the way the government has responded to that and whether it's been quick enough to condemn uh, the human rights situation in Gaza. But either way, as you say, it was a pretty significant booing of the Prime Minister, uh, he has dismissed it as a good old Aussie tradition, and it is true that leaders do often get booed at sporting events over here, but not always. But I guess the problem he has politically is that once there's video of him being booed, it can be used in a sort of a disembodied sense and uh, it can reinforce people's prejudices if they have them. So probably that probably wasn't a great way to start the year for the Prime Minister. No, not indeed. Uh, now, a shark attack, they happen from time to time. Uh, this one, high profile, it was in Sydney Harbour, Karen. Yeah, it was. It was in Elizabeth Bay, which is a, a sort of quiet, a quiet bit, bit of Sydney Harbour, just, um, you know, in quite, with, with quite a nice leafy suburb uh, nearby. And this is a young woman, 29-year-old Lauren O'Neill, who was swimming at dusk. Now, they do tell us 
traditionally that dawn and dusk are danger times for sharks, but I think people tend to think the Sydney Harbour is safe. And there aren't many shark attacks historically in Sydney Harbour. I think there's only been, I think, fewer than 50 documented in something like 170 years. But the suggestion is that this is a bull shark and that most of the attacks, when they have happened, have been bull sharks, which are quite aggressive. Now, the the people who know about sharks are telling us that part of the reason for this is likely to be that the water is warmer. Now, we've had a really weird summer here with a lot of rain and but high high temperatures, and the waters along the east coast are very warm, warmer than usual for this time of year. Apparently, 22 degrees is the temperature that sharks enjoy, and that the water in Sydney Harbour is around about that right at the moment. So it was a sort of a perfect situation for a shark, being at dusk. And Lauren O'Neill was very badly mauled on her leg, and she's very lucky to be alive. She was tended to by uh, a local woman who was a vet. Uh, Fiona Crago, who managed to get her out, out. she sort of hauled herself up onto a, um, the dock via a, a ladder and then the vet happened to be nearby and, and help until other help arrived. So she's a, she's a lucky woman, but it's got everyone talking about swimming in Sydney Harbour and particularly at those times of day. Yeah, and right in, as you say, right in a suburb. Uh, right at a suburban yeah. beach. Now flooding, more torrential rain for southern Queensland. It's unbelievable, Catherine. As I mentioned, it's been a very wet summer and I suppose it's all the more surprising and shocking for us because we were all told by the weather forecasters that we were headed now back for another El Nino, which we naturally assumed to be dry. We had bushfire briefings before the summer. Everybody was on alert for another one of those terrible bushfire summers like we had in 2019-20. But no, we've had incredible rain. And just the other day on Monday night and Tuesday morning, in uh, southern Queensland, they had just the most extraordinary downpour. They had 350 mil- millimetres of rain in three hours. And this is, uh, I don't know, I've lost count of how many um, flash flooding situations they've had in southern Queensland in the last two months. But I was stuck in one of them when I was camping in, through the summer uh, in a very unpleasant experience at a music festival. And this is yet another one. We've had people evacuated. We've seen houses underwater. Uh, cars, people being caught in cars. They had 30 swift water rescues on Monday night and Tuesday morning around the southern uh, Queensland, in southern Queensland, around the Gold Coast area and inland and up to the Sunshine Coast. So it's really been a terrible time and people are struggling, having just started to clean up after the last lot. And we saw some around Christmas and then after New Year, yet another one. And people are really wondering when this is going to stop because it comes just from, from nowhere in such volumes that it just can't be managed easily. You got caught out yourself by it over Christmas here? Yes, yes. As I was just saying, I got caught out camping at a music festival and we ended up sort of ankle deep in mud. It was not my most fun camping experience ever. <laughs> but, but uh, um, you know, as I say, it's far, far worse for these people who are really now finding their houses submerged multiple times in some cases, but certainly the the areas in which they live underwater yet again. And it certainly puts a huge pressure on the emergency services too, who do an amazing job. It really does seem to be a trend with weather and climate change, just the deluges, the systems sitting longer. Very Uh, worrying. Super, super quickly, about um, a minute left. Of course, we were also worrying about um, bushfires with the changing weather system we're going into. Is that looking touch wood okay at the moment? Well, so they warned us, as I say, that they warned us that we might face a bad bushfire summer, and we haven't. I suppose the fear now is that people get complacent. But, yeah. of course, with all the rain comes all the greenery and all the growth. And if we do then suddenly get a late summer burst of dry heat, 
there could well be a terrible Fuel. bushfire risk Goodness. as well. Yeah. Hmm. So we've got to be vigilant. Fingers crossed too. Thank you, Karen Middleton, Chief Political Correspondent for the Saturday Paper. We're back in Australia after 10 with the British-born writer Rachel Spratt, R.A. Spratt, she's known as, to so many children who absolutely love her books. They include Shockingly Good Stories, Friday Barns, The Pesky Kids and Nanny Piggins. She has a new book out called, a new collection actually, called Hamlet is Not Okay. We'll talk to R.A. Spratt about building a fan base and also what it is that really hooks young readers onto reading. And we'll be up in uh, Waikato, in Hamilton, the Tron, before 11 with uh, RNZ's reporter there.